The Octarine Tree, a podcast exploring the meaning of ecology, spirit, and human relationship. From Southwestern Australia, I'm your host, Byron John. G'day, Mob. Welcome back to the Octarine Tree podcast. This week, we have a chappy by the name of Scott Hall. I'm talking to Scott about his practice of syntropic agriculture. As we discuss, syntropic agriculture has its roots in Brazil, and it's a particular form of forestry or agroforestry that's based on the the principles of succession in ecology. Now, we'll flesh all of this out, Scott and I, later in the chat. It's probably worth noting that this episode is for the agricultural nerds out there. It is very interesting, regardless, and it's something that I've wanted to get a better idea of for some time because I haven't actually had a really deep dive into it. This is, this is the, the furthest I've actually discussed it myself. Uh, also, I should note, I haven't even spoken to this yet, but just so everyone knows, the music, all the music for this podcast at the beginning and at the end is all mine. So I have the plan to change the song every kind of five, ten episodes to a different a different song. Now they're just demos. They're actually not fit for release to be entirely honest, but I'm frankly just sick of having them laying around and having no one else but me hear them. So I'm putting them out there. So um, anyway, without further ado, let's get into it. This is Scott Hall discussing syntropic agriculture. Scott Hall, welcome to the Octarine Tree podcast. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Yourself? I'm very well, mate. Thank you. Uh, thanks again for coming on. Now tell me, what part of the world exactly are you speaking to us from today? Right now, I'm in Narang on the Gold Coast. Narang, is that where you're based with your projects? Um, at the moment, yeah, I'm sort of quite transitory at the moment. Uh, I've wound up my job at Davila with the, the farm there. That's sort of come to its limits. And uh, I'm sort of looking around and at all of the 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 opportunities everywhere and and I, I sort of have a bit of interest here and a bit of interest there at the moment and I'm kind of orienting myself orientating myself at the moment yeah okay so how long were you at that place for at Gabala five years okay you got a fair bit done there didn't you I did uh, as much as I could yeah uh we got started and you know sort of had a few uh, challenges and mistakes along the way, but managed to manage the system and steer it and then sort of get it moving and, yeah, got a lot better towards the, the later part of it. Okay. I've been following your work online with Syntropic Agriculture for a number of years now, and it's really interesting to me because Syntropic Agriculture is one of those things that I, as someone who is fairly well-versed in the world of, call it what you will, regenerative agriculture, that that whole scene was pretty well-versed in the different modalities and, and areas of study that make that up, right? Like permaculture, key line, holistic management, and then you've got biodynamics and everyone's got their own little modality and twist on things. Yep. So when I saw syntropic agriculture start being mentioned, it took me a fair while to actually kind of cotton on that something legitimate and really interesting was happening. Mm -hmm. And now I'm at the point where I, from what I understand of it, I consider it to be a, a major node in the whole discussion. 
like it's a seriously valuable toolkit. Would you give us a brief background on syntropic agriculture as you understand it, like just the history of it, a bit about Ernst and, and Brazil and all the rest? Uh, it's just that Ernst worked really hard on a really uh, difficult site. And to really sort of put it in a nutshell, he, he, he experienced through his experiments um, um, really good results and periods of growth. And then he would then experience for unknown reasons some that growth shutting down and then mm -hmm. plants being attacked and whatnot. And uh, he kept experimenting with, and trying to find out why because he had very little resources. So he couldn't go and fertilise and, and whatnot and all of those other different ways we can support plants. Yeah. Uh, so he had to work with that. And... Um, after a while, he twigged that it was all about uh, the ages and life cycles and successional groups of the plants. Yeah. And so what happened was he managed to put a framework together where um, we could organise the plants into their successional groups and then move them through vigorous growth phases in their life cycles through that natural species succession. And, um, and then he went from there to regenerating quite a lot of land, you know, and then started to share it. Whereabouts was this? Uh, in uh, Bahia, in northern Brazil. Okay, and and uh, but Ernst wasn't from Brazil, was he? No, worked around a fair bit in Central America and experimented here and there and whatnot. But he's a, uh, I think he's Swiss. Yeah, okay. He's a botanist. Okay, so it started with this bloke Ernst Gotch. Is that how you pronounce his name? Yeah, it's, yeah, I suppose. Yep. Close enough. Okay. Yeah, so European guy in Brazil, yep. observing the natural patterns of the forest ecology and forest succession, and developed a system based on that. Is that correct? Is that yeah? Primarily, it's based on the successional patterns of woodland or forest ecology. Is that too simple? Yeah, no, that's good enough. He's organised the way of being able to uh, utilise that system in a framework. Yeah. Before you discovered Syntropic Ag, what was your background in agriculture or horticulture? Did you have any or did you land straight into that area of study and practice? Well, I grew up on a farm and I then worked on a lot of farms, broadacre stuff early in um, orchards, a lot of orchard contracting. In market gardening, I've always, you know, I moved, always gravitated towards organic farming. Uh, so, yeah, just um, organic market gardening and whatnot and strongly influenced by permaculture for a very long time. And uh, mm -hmm. I did start some projects around 2010, 2010, sorry. Um, I was out on my own trying to kind of come up with the same outcomes that Ernst uh, was doing. I was trying to work through something like that, which was very, very poor in comparison. And uh, yeah, once I found out about it and I realised he'd nutted it out, I instantly knew. And so, yeah, that's once that came, it changed everything. So I was on land already trying to manage agroforestry systems and then the Syntropic Ag came about. Okay. What kind of agroforestry systems were you playing with before you landed at Syntropic Agriculture? Well, sort of an analogue agroforestry type of approach about, you know, using, you know, different local species and methods, um, but not so much driven in by those successional sort of that framework. Yeah. When did you discover Syntropic Ag? Yeah, like 2015. That's when it was. And was that just online? You just stumbled across it? No, that was with Victor Pyers. 
and uh, Tiago Barboza. Um, we facilitated uh, bringing over Patricia Vaz and Namaste Messerschmitt to Australia. Okay, yeah. Uh, what, what happened first is Victor and Tiago went overseas and did a course yeah. over in Brazil, came back and then we started uh, at Gabala where I was managing the land. Yeah. And um, we went from there and, you know, kind of bit of an amateurish start and then, yeah, ended up getting Patricia and Namaste over. Okay, cool. So can you explain to me and those listening um, as if we're four-year-olds who have never heard of it? <laughs> I'm sure you've done this a thousand times and are probably sick of it. But No, I'm trying to do it. I don't think I've actually achieved, but I'll give it another go. Yeah, okay. So syntropic agriculture, there's all different types and forms of agriculture. How, how, does, yeah. how does this work? We've said that it's based on the successional patterns of woodland or forest ecology. How would you expand on that? How would you describe this to the layman? Yeah, okay. So first, try to came apart a little bit the, the whole umbrella of re, re, the term regenerative and just extract it out a little bit sure. and just try to sort of make a distinction that far as I understand the goal mm-hmm. is uh, for a, a, a um, ecologically driven system, uh, you know, a process that is a natural ecological function that you just perhaps need to manage and steer, a lot like uh, Alan Savory's Managed grazing is yep. exactly the same. That's that's really just con- managing that ecology, using the ecological function as its um, driving force. Right. Um, and then there's all of the other types where there starts to become a little bit more input based, where you sort of start to interfere more mechanically or with energy and whatnot, or you know, mm-hmm. bring in things and and whatnot. Or, or, or spend a lot of time in the shed making preparations or, or whatever. Yeah. That's the first thing I'd like to point out, that it is an ecologically driven system. So you, we're really focusing on the site. Yeah. And, and then it's looked at as a macro-organism. And so that, what we do is we manage it that way through, through the framework mm-hmm. and, and just get it to feed itself that way. So that's probably the key thing about it, very wide perspective. Then there's a framework. Yeah, within that, that we manage species succession through. Yeah, okay. So succession, for those listening, in ecology, describes the way in which uh, an environment, an ecosystem, builds upon itself and grows and changes in such a way that it actually changes the environment of itself. And in doing so, in changing the environment, it creates, well, a different environment, which houses and welcomes and fosters different species species and dynamics so if you have like a primary succession event which isn't that common but it's when the ecology is stripped back to like a zero point ostensibly when there's no biology like if there's a lava flow you know a volcanic eruption or lava flow or a avalanche and there's nothing but rubble or if there's an extremely severe fire it's not quite a primary succession event that might be considered a secondary succession event where virtually all of the obvious life biology is killed but there's still a lot of organic matter that would be a secondary succession event like a flood a flood would take out a lot of the the macrobiology the, the plants but you'd be left with a lot of organic matter but from these stages whatever the state is life slowly crawls forward from lichen on the rock mm. or you know the the weed seeds popping up out of the ground at the building site you've got the fast growing large seed dispersing annual weeds 
And then they give way to larger shrubs, which give way to bigger trees. And all the time, the soil is building and the soil is building and it's attracting other species and it's creating a richer environment, more diverse species. So that's succession. So you've just mentioned that syntropic agriculture is primarily uses succession as its engine, right? Yes. Yep. Okay. And there's a framework around the succession. So is could you go into that framework for us? I'm sure it's a bit tricky. Yeah, it is a little bit tricky because it's non-linear. It's 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 a um it's it's a dynamic. Yeah. And it's about managing that dynamic. Right. I, I always have thought of it as very analogous to uh, managed grazing, the way the cows, the predator and the grass come together and move into a, in a dynamic mm-hmm. and the results are either good or bad depending on how that's formed or what influences it. Mm-hmm. It's very similar uh, in a, and we manage that dynamic in a consortium. Right. Uh, well, the plants actually come together in a consortium through different uh, characteristics they have involving their life cycle and their strata mm-hmm. and their place in succession. Right. So, and then that comes together as a dynamic and then that's managed mm-hmm. and that's what drives it. That's what keeps the, the, that's what keeps it in its power all of the time Yeah. because otherwise it can flatten out and go uh, senescent or, you know, stagnant. Yeah. So that's managed through this, you're always keeping an eye on what that dynamic is doing it's ebbing it's flowing it's always in flux it's going stagnant or maybe leaping forward so you're always keeping an eye on that hey so you're looking for the trees or the you're looking for the species in any stage of succession that are uh, moving past the vigorous s-curve stage of their life cycle out into the flattening out period you're watching for that all of the time and managing it out and those plants feed back as biomass into the system as you what you was at the same time you're always looking for new plants coming up and moving in that will be taking the place of those plants moving out and those plants that are constantly moving in are the higher succession species so that's what we're doing and we're always and the plants that are in the strong uh, steep part of the s curve are your are your high production plants in that period in time in succession which are, a lot of them are your biomass generating plants and a lot of them are your crop. So this is what we're after. We're always after staying into that steep part in the S-curve all the time. You're like shepherding the plants in a sense. Yeah. Okay, that's really interesting. Walk us through like a hypothetical system development. Like say you walked out into a bare patch of dirt yep. and let's say it's northern New South Wales or an area like that, just to give us a bit of a foundation. Yep. How would you go about designing a system like that and implementing it? Yeah. What kind of things are you looking for? Well, I mean, what what sort of context? So let's just say we, we wanted to make a small farm, for example, Yeah. in the northern... I can go to another climate and do it too. It doesn't matter. It's really quite fluid and adaptable. So if we've got a pasture, all right, so we would hope that there'd be already good grasses in the pasture. But let's just say it's, um, you know, something like uh, Ceteria or something which isn't good enough for biomass, it won't provide enough biomass. Try to find some economical way of improving succession in the grasses, but every two metres hoe and rip, and then a, um, a line, probably about a metre wide, mm-hmm. and they are tree lines, and every second one will be an intercrop row. This is how I go about it. And then, uh, right. um, you know, hoe, rip, and then amend, you know, a bit of rock phosphate and pelletised manure um, and uh, whatnot, mm-hmm. possibly a bit of lime, whatever works for you. 
normally when we go into, we always have to have a biomass ready to because we always cover the soil as a zero tolerance for, for bare soil in this. 100% ground cover, 100% of the time. 100%, 100% of the time. Um, so what we'll do is if we need to bring the biomass in, we will to start off the system. Right. Otherwise, you know, like cheap spoiled hay or wood chip or something like that. But normally we try to cut it down in the paddock and roll it up with a hay rake and make it available. Mm -hmm. And if we have to widen the tree rows, the distances to start with, if we can't access biomass or biomass at the right price, yeah. we might have to go six metres for a tree row or every 12 metres for a tree row, depending on the quality of the pasture. Mm -hmm. So we'll do that. Whatever way, we make sure we're covered with biomass. So we rip and hoe the lines. Yep. And then um, we plan our consortium based on what sort of tree uh, outcomes we want. So perhaps we might want to be growing tree lines with uh, avocado in them. Yep. Is it an important part of the initial design thinking to think about like what's the final successional dynamic look like? Do you, think, do you have to think that through at the beginning? Yep. Yep. You would say to yourself, okay, what do, what do we want this to look like down the track? You're going to go through all sorts of permutations and changes and transformations along the way, but the end result in search of a, a less rigid term is something you have in mind at the beginning. Yeah, well, it's actually not that tricky to do. Um, and yeah, you've got to work with it. So of course, you know, like you're not going to get avocados in the first four years. So obviously, right, you're going to have something else going on in that time. But of of course, the avocados are growing as well. Yeah. Um, but because each successional stage gets longer, you can move through the first sort of three or four quite quickly or, in, you know, uh, the first three or wherever you want your production to be. If your production in early secondary succession, you might want to stay there for longer than you might want. The, you know, the, the system might want to move. Okay. You know, you can get through, like, so I look at target crops through the first three years, mm -hmm. uh, roughly, just roughly, you know, because that encompasses... You know, crops like taro, cassava, banana, um, any sort of second year producing short-lived perennial, which is all early secondary succession, uh, all that sort of stuff, you know, get a, and you can get some good yields on that. That's a good earner. A lot of the stuff we eat is in actually early secondary succession. So we should probably just quickly point out for those listening that this is all grown in the same area. Like you've said, you're thinking about the long-term final form of this system, which in this case you said avocados in this particular like hypothetical yep but as those avocados are growing you're actually using that space to grow all sorts of other stuff yeah yeah because avocado needs those plants yeah you know but the avocado is not supposed to sit out in the paddock in the sun right especially when it's young yeah that's right when it's young absolutely when it's young it needs to be in a placenta in protected in a um supporting pioneers that so that's the actual term that you guys use in Syntropic. Uh, you use the term placenta to, to describe the dynamic created by the nurse plants around the other plant. Yeah, uh, oh, I mean, you know, it's a translation, but it's, it's yeah, it's, it's essentially what covers the soil and, and protects. Okay. So um, in, in a real Syntropic system, I, don't know, I didn't mean to say it that way, but in a yeah. Syntropic system where you really want to not be, you want to work more, well, solidly with those forces, you put the avocado in as seed. Oh, true. Yeah, yeah. You want it to have the right start in the right conditions, in the right environment where it's evolved. I'm all for um, direct seeding trees. I'm a big fan of it. I, I've done it a fair few times. And then you can graft in situ later on if necessary. That's right. 
Yes, 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 yes. That's the way it was always done, like in the old world, to go off track a bit, in Morocco. Yeah. I've got photos of it. It's awesome. The old chaps in the villages in the foothills of the Rift Mountains, they would become aware of the wild stands of of whatever it was, you know, like there'd be bitter almonds or cherries or quince, crab apple. There was fig, olive, all the usual Mediterranean species. Mm-hmm. And they'd be out walking their goats and sheep around and they'd know their land intimately. So they would know where, oh, you know, half a day's walk up that particular valley, up that mountainside, there's a very robust stand of wild uh, pistachio. Yep. So they, you know, they just make sure that next time they're going up that way, they'll take cuttings if it's the right time of the year from the really, really good cultivated pistachio that uncle so-and-so has in their backyard. And they'd go up the hill and they'd graft it on in you mm-hmm. interesting to watch you know cut it right back in the right way and they're masters of the graft with the grafting knife and they use these little palm fronds as their tape mm-hmm. to secure it and then they patch it up with mud and there you go so because once upon a time that you didn't have plant nurseries that was how you established an augmented genetic base was to graft onto wild rootstock namaste mr schmidt told me which his analogy is um you can take a heart outside of the human body and keep the patient alive mm. like you know in an operating theater and that but there's a lot of energy and and, and attention needed to keep it like that yeah. to keep the patient alive but uh, and that's how we sort of treat our trees our crop trees we pull them out of the out of the body into uh, a, a park mm. uh, with, and then and spray it and then start to treat all of the symptoms and put that energy in to keep it alive whereas the the uh, put, to put the heart back inside the body is the, the process here and then everything turns around. And so when you got those avocado seedlings, for example, growing in with all of the other appropriate species uh, where they're evolved to how they're evolved to grow, uh, you know, the plant gets to, you know, it might get to your two-year-old or one-year-old age where you can graft onto it mm-hmm. uh, and then, in situ uh and then it's still in a nursery yeah because all of the other plants around it the banana you know the eucalypt or if the eucalypt's still there it might be something else like a black bean or whatever there's a whole heap of other trees in all strata Mm -hmm. that are providing all of that shading conditions and humidity that actually occurs in a nursery but we go out and take the heart outside of the body and make a nursery you know yeah but it works well it's it's definitely the go well, who, who was it that said, you know, modern horticulture is trying to kill things that want to live and resuscitate things that are dying? Yeah, that's right. That direct seedling idea out here in um, Western Australia, where it's at best a Mediterranean climate and then it gets, you know, more and more toward the arid. Yep. That direct seeding I found to be really beneficial, especially with the types of trees that are designed for Mediterranean to semi arid climates and they have a tap root so if you buy a or even you raise one of these trees yourself in a pot in a nursery which is totally doable like carob pistachio any of the big you know nut species the pecans the walnuts the cork oaks what have you you can raise them in a nursery and stick them back in the ground but you will miss out on that the initial burst and the initial instincts they have is to send a tap root straight down yeah i've raised acorns and walnuts and you you put these things in the ground and they'll send their their first you know stem and leaves up and they'll hang out there at 
you know, two, three inches tall with one little tiny canopy of leaves, four, five, six leaves, and they'll just hang there. And it could be like two seasons, three seasons of just doing that. Mm. And you'll see the stem thickening up, but they won't get any taller. I've got photos of it where I went and then dug down into one to have a look. It was a walnut. And it was only one season this thing was in the ground. It blew me away. It was two, three inches max above ground, little finger thickness. Mm -hmm. Then below ground, it fattened out to like the size of a fist, almost like a tuba. And then its taproot went down about 700 mil or further. It was remarkable. And then once they feel like they're comfortable, they're established, put these deposits in where they know it's wise to, they've deposited and invested. Then comes the the season. There's one spring where they'll just go and take off. Yeah, that's what we're after. That's that's it. Yeah. Okay. So I took you on a long-winded trail there. You were you you were back saying um that you've ripped and mounded. You've brought in biomass if you need to. Yep. And I think that's about where, where we got to. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the idea is to make sure that you've got your your next. Where, where's your next biomass going to come from? And that's going to ha- going to have to come from the grasses again, right? And that's going to have to happen for a couple of years until a eucalypts can start to provide in a meaningful way. You sow the right kind of grasses just to provide the biomass until the the next successional stage really cranks. Yeah, okay, that's right. So we're using that savanna sort of got the woodland edge sort of if you want to look at it from a permaculture point of view. It's a sort of a woodland edge dynamic. Right. We just foster and, and grow the best, highest-powered um, C4-type biomass producers in those grass rows. So we're after the most powerful, uh, and we're very, very particular about it too. We really want, you know, there's a lot of things that are pretty good, but there's some of that are, that are just outstanding, and we're always after that level of um uh, photosynthesis in those grass rows. Have you always got your eye out just for adding another species to your list of favourites that just do the job really well? Yeah, well, well yeah, I am and, and others, we're always open for that, um, you know, uh, definitely in the tree side of things because there's always new trees everywhere. Like this methodology has just been in Australia for five years and we're starting to find all of these Australian species a fantastic agroforestry trees, you know, where we're feeding back a few tips to Brazil. Right. Uh, and a few ideas we've found just out of luck and experimenting with, you know, the right, you know, because it's, this is an indiscriminate approach in the sense that when you go and get seeds to put into the systems, the seeds of succession that must be there, which is the most important part of the job, um, you're completely indiscriminate as to what seeds you put in. Right. Uh, so you get, you get everything you can. Whatever works. Whatever, whatever you can. Right. You don't know if it's going to work. Right. You just don't know. Some may not work that you thought were a really good idea, yep. uh, but some that you don't know anything about suddenly show you something you completely didn't expect. Uh, so you have to allow for that. What does work mean in this context? Like how do you know if something is working? Yeah. Is it as simple as growing well? They all come together into a dynamic as they grow, as everything starts to happen. And some species are just looking like they're getting pushed out. You know, they get leggy or they get start to get holes in the leaves. Mm-hmm. You thought they were great, but, you know, but they're not as good as you thought they were or something, so you've got to prune it right out, you know, and something else that's just saying, hey, move over. 
I was surprised to see you guys speaking about eucalypts because eucalypts and annual vegetable production, in my experience, really don't mix. Yeah. Right? Because the eucalypts are so competitive. They're so good at what they do. But I've seen photos of, I think they were your photos. They may have been someone else's of, um, you know, someone growing kale and other annual, biannual vegetable crops immediately next to eucalypt seedlings going in. Mm. So, I mean, that kind of thing is testimony to how different this system is yeah yeah well no plant's bad our point of view on allopathy is that it doesn't exist and it's a construct of ours uh we see different effects we read what uh i can understand i used to think in allopathic terms too yeah but um what what i did notice though is um once i was educated uh, or taught that it's just a allopathy is an effect of a plant in a certain part of its life cycle. And it's not any specific plant that actually is allopathic. They all can have that potential, but it's just goes, it's, it relates back to senescence and uh, succession and when plants are moving out of their successional phase uh, and um, it shuts, shuts things down, shuts things down around them. And that's a really big part of the dynamic of our management, which is the comp- complement the opposite to that is the pruning that we do the heavy pruning we do we stay on top of any negative effects that any man, plant might have that's going into the um later stages of its life cycle where it's taking more energy than it's giving and and we prune it out um very decisively yeah we just move it right out you know it's there's no doubt or flinching about doing big cuts it just, yeah comes up and away she goes again you know you get pretty scissor happy when you need to when you need to yeah yeah that's right yeah yeah it fluffs up pretty quick you know yeah it all fluffs right up and once it all fluffs up um you know to use that highly technical jargon yeah. once it all fluffs up it gets to a point where the photosynthesis starts to slow down like it goes through a really strong photosynthesis uh, period of photosynthesis on a growth pulse is what we call a growth pulse and all fluffs right up and canopies out again yeah and once it hits that point it's the peak right and that's when we prune we have to prune after that uh, because things start getting woody and leggy and you get you know, um, the, the amount of branches that you see on the plants don't have that many uh, vigorous healthy leaves there's not a lot of pushing growth that are coming out of the stems and that's a sign that it's, it's slowing down and that's the time if it was past you, you'd bring the cattle in. So this is really interesting. You're recalibrating your eco-agricultural mind to perceive things very much in terms of the cycles of plants. Now, absolutely, that's something that, you know, I don't know if you'd call it given lip service or thrown around a lot in different regenerative agricultural fields and rewilding and all of these, all these ideas. But it sounds like more than most practices of cultivation, you're really focusing on that. Like you would be uh, developing a very keen appreciation for those ebbs and flows and like inhalations and exhalations and mm. periods of growth and periods of rest and periods of sun- senescence, it sounds to me like. Yeah, that's the whole, that's, that's what it's all based on, yeah. Have you found yourself becoming far more sensitive to and able to pick up on these subtle differences in the landscape at large from, from these studies? Yeah, and it's not hard. Uh, we all know how it's... We just need to learn to uh, recognise what we what we innately know when we see it. 
it's just a matter of having something pointed out to us that uh, we all, we've we've seen since our eyes were open. You know. Yeah. Um, you know, it's we all, we're all tuned into it. We just need to know what what we're seeing described to us. Yeah. In this, and then we'll it's just, it's it's obvious. You know, we've we've been looking at. It. It's funny, isn't it? Just to have a pattern that you've one has always been in proximity to, if not surrounded by, and just to have that pattern pointed to and given a name. It's, ama- it's amazing the difference it makes. I can give you an example. Yeah, please. The example is, um, okay, so imagine a eucalypt. I can use a eucalypt because we're all, um, I know, you know, most of Australians are very used to seeing that tree. Indeed, yeah. Uh, so we can imagine the eucalypt, let's say, in, um, in its life over, in, let's look sort of 50 years into its life from it, uh, time as a, a young seedling um, and we'll look at it at three stages in its life so we can look at it in the seedling stage have a look and when they're in that stage they've got a fairly thin stem and whatnot and they've got very sp- sparse leaves you know mm-hmm. they're young and they're trying to accumulate and, and then move into a fast growth then you have on the other opposite uh, end a grown fully grown eucalypt the one that we imagine, yep. you know, a lot of that is represented in, old, in a lot of Australian art and whatnot, the quintessential eucalypt. Mm-hmm. Um, and so try to imagine that eucalypt, the amount of leaves that it's got, and just sort of just try to imagine the amount of photosynthesis yeah. there. You don't have to quantify it in any way, but you sort of look at the leaves and just see it and then look at the amount of, bio, the, the amount of biomass that it contains in its trunk you know, the big trunk, all of that wood. Yeah. Heaps of timber that's moving right up really high with a canopy just sitting on the top. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then go back to sort of like halfway through its age, maybe when uh, from that point when it was about, um, or even earlier, when it was about maybe 13 years old. Yeah. Something like that, depending on the species, but uh, up to 15 years old. And then imagine it then as it's still a single leader. Right. It's still generally one big long trunk and it hasn't started to branch out into a big head. Right. Uh, and it's pointing up and it's always pointing. It's got pointier tips on it everywhere and it's, it's, its laterals get pointy as well. And that's the, the thrust of the growth in it as it's always pushing up new growing tips. You can recognise that and you can see the fresher colour in the new growth all the time. You know, it's always shinier color a nicer green or sometimes they're very red mm-hmm. um grow out and and uh keep that in mind when you look at the older tree and then try then to imagine the biomass to photosynthesis ratio of those three trees when it's very young then when it's in that really strong growth period or when when it's there when it sits there forever looking the same for a very, very long time. Right. <laughs> Once they get to a certain age, they can just sit there and have just sticks fall off them for 100 years probably. They're established. Yeah, they're established, but they're also old. Right. You know? Yeah. So that's what we look for is that, that growth, that powerful growth. We start to learn to recognise when a plant's really photosynthesizing powerfully in, in, in the strongest part of its life. And then that's when you have no allopathy. <laughs> uh, and try to imagine plants as being old, juvenile, uh, and then 
look at why, and it's usually on the roadsides because the, that's where the council come past and doze it or spray it all the time. And your best references are on the railway tracks and road roadsides. Yeah, they're always a really good example of um, repositories of interesting species. Yeah. And man's fight against natural succession. Yeah. Constantly spraying things to, to keep it down, like the constant fight against that growth impulse. Yeah. And the most vigorous photosynthesis is occurring in those places, ironically. Right. Okay, so we've developed these beds, we've lined them out, we've introduced biomass if we have to. What are the first plantings you're putting in? Because the grass, that's what we focus on. Um, you know, like in a really, let's just say if you're a really low resource, you just start accumulating grass possibly maybe in the first two years without even planting trees. Right. You've got to keep the soil covered. And once you get that part right, you can start to do what you want. Okay. So you'd be introducing at the same time, potentially, the trees that you would be intending to be climax canopy species, if you will as well as midterm stuff and early early stage stuff all of, some of which is the actual cropping edible fruit food yielding species and others would be biomass or some kind of support species would you be throwing in all sorts of stuff at once yeah 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 you need all plants in the consortia there and then plus all future ones okay so then it has to then it move through time and you manage it yeah I dare say you're probably never going to get to a stage where it's it's hands off and you're not cultivating it or managing it in any way. But what does a in search of a better term the final product look like? What does a climax system is there? A, is there a climax system in this thinking? And what does it look like if there is one? Well, that's a really good question. It's a really really good question because um, that really. We have to ask ourselves how much of what we do do we want to go all the way to climax and how much of what we do we go, are we going to use to feed us these specific crops that we demand as a society to, that we want to consume. So, of course, if you go into climax, you're not going to have wheat. Right, of course. You know, you're going to have baby pop, nuts and whatnot, but there's a balance that, you know, I, depending on how much we end up getting done, if we all find that it works for us and a lot of us do it i'm sure vast areas may be able to go back to climax and um we can passively use those spaces and um but still manage edges and other systems where it's um where we sort of moving through and pruning it back more and 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 hitting it again with crops that that we need like uh, that we perhaps choose like you know wheat or, or potatoes or um tree crops you know um, a lot of what we eat lower succession stuff interesting and it leads me to my next question because i've got a fairly good idea in this part of the world anyway where i'm from i'm most familiar with southwestern australia and by extension to that mediterranean climate systems are even and semi-arid even they do change of course but you know there are these broad patterns and i've got a fairly good idea if i was emperor hypothetically what I would do with the landscape based on what I've studied and that being a broad scale mosaic patterning of this interrelationship between like intensive rotational grazing a la holistic management, tree crop systems, whether alley rows and alley cropping or savanna systems like the dehesa, pasture cropping, key line design as the foundation of all of it, et cetera, et cetera. What I'm really interested is in how 
and where the syntropic agricultural systems can interface with and marry with these other modalities. If you played with ways in which like livestock interface with syntropic agriculture? Oh, well, that's, that's the way it's got to go. The way I see it is if you take a look at it from the other way around and come at it from a, you know, a silver pasture or broad agroforestry pasture grower, the way they look at trees or whatnot. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you want your trees there, you want the most uh, effective form of management and our um, best outcomes you can get from it. So that's where the syntropic uh, methodology comes in and it can fit that. It's like a missing link in the piece because they all need the grasses, the animals and the trees. Yeah. You know, um, there's no, you know, everywhere you look in a savannah, there's trees. Yeah. There's varying densities of them. You know, there's clumps in blues and that, there's woodlands, there's, you know, the gallery forests and all of these places uh, in, in these types of semi-arid environments. Uh, and, and so I think, you know, start looking at them as a dynamic, on their they work the way we look at grasses the animals and the predator combine um, start to look at the tree systems that way and then manage accordingly but yes livestock um, and uh, grasses go together and trees and grasses go together too holistic management they they don't speak much to tree systems in fact there's not a whole lot of there's not a lot of room for plugging other things in in holistic management, I mean, it's, it is used a great deal in combination with other systems, but they don't talk a whole lot about trees or other other types of systems. Yeah, um, you know, trees, uh, this is the missing link, you know. We understand if we don't talk a lot about trees and we just see them there, that that's all they are to us until we sort of look into it further and go, holy hell, there's a whole dynamic involved in how these things grow. Yeah. Um, we completely you know specific to itself it's not oh you know they all like a bit of lime or throw a bit of phosphorus on it and the grass likes it too there's this no no all this totally independent dynamic but actually the dynamic moves out and does interrelate with the grasses and the savannah and the animals too um all actually comes together as a whole and uh so the tree systems of the the, this methodology and framework is the missing link and mm. how to understand that, that woodland dynamic where we kind of have our head around the, the savannah pasture dynamic. Yep. Uh, but when, when we put the trees into it, it's the whole picture, you know. It's, there's not much there that's missing now out of our sort of ecological whole. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, if you've got trees and you've got grasses and you've got animals, they shouldn't be um, separately managed for a start. They have to be managed together as a single interact because they all have to interact. Yeah. Your grazing plan would most definitely move through the trees, the uh, tree rows in between in your grasses. You'd yeah. part of your grass for biomass. You would it would um, pay very much to put the presence of animals in there from time to time on after a recovery to um improve that you can't keep taking the grasses you have to give to the grasses the animals but then give a little yeah yeah then then they but they eat the trees too you see so um but you know uh, with a cow being a, a a um you know a ruminant it 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 eats you know what about 80 percent grass and about 20 percent browse i'm not exactly sure but right. on the numbers I've seen what they eat and i've seen that they will fill their rumen on nice sweet grass in between the tree rows, let it get up nice and high and sweet and re fully recovered. Mm -hmm. And um, 
hit them, hit it with the cattle, and they'll just get in there and room and up, fill their room in, and then they'll they'll get on the trees, and they'll eat here and they'll eat there and bits and pieces and that they won't smash the trees. But once that grass is gone, they're out. So once they, they've grazed it down, they can't spend any longer in there. That's when when they start doing the real damage on the tree crops. Yeah, otherwise I'll overbrowse the trees because they're out of grass. So. But I think that service that they have to the trees while they're in there, particularly because they actually eat the leaves, they medicate and mineralise from tree leaves and then they excrete it back into the system biologically. They self-medicate. Yeah, yeah. And then you get a flush on your... Like I do. Yeah. <laughs> you get a flush. You get a, a, a flush on your growth after that because it's a, it's a grass yeah. response. You get a growth pulse with the grass, and it's it's all integrated. The animal grows, but the trees get a growth pulse. That's the real exciting thing is when it when it all comes together. It is. There's been a number of projects where a part of the project is I fence off the riparian areas, and I, I I kind of always do that. It's kind of just a default template I go to. There's times where I don't, but the majority of the time I do so. I fence off a riparian area. And it may be 10, 20, 30 metres from the stream line on either side, give or take, depending on the context. Most people keep animals out of that forever. But I fence it off because I just want it to represent its own area type with its own management regime. But I run the animals through and it drives some people crazy. I will fence off a riparian area and I'll actively revegetate it. And, you know, if we put in some leaky weirs or other kind of erosion mitigating structures revegetate it you know do all of that but once that system is then robust enough and established enough to handle it i bring animals through mm. on a different regime not in the same density or time frame that i do with other paddocks that are like their primary function is pasture but i bring them through and it's beneficial i mean even in australia where people say oh yes but we've never had hooved animals and just the best thing you can do for country is to lock it up and keep humans and hooved animals out of there unless you're going to go spray it with glyphosate. Mm. Um, despite that kind of headspace, it, it does work. Mm. It might be once every three seasons. Yep. You let them run through, they thin things out, they trample some things down, they, they bust the soil up a little bit, you know, da -da -da -da. they do what they do and then you get them out of there. They, those systems benefit from those mosaic disturbance events yeah that's right um but it, it's all must come together i don't see why we the, the more we separate it the more energy it takes from us but i so i do see them when they come together though we, it becomes more and more efficient and beautiful and fun oh, well look at the positive feedbacks that start you know it's just endless i think it's the most beautiful thing i mean there's to see like a productive human stewarded landscape with all of those trophic levels and niches occupied to the greatest degree possible. Beautiful. You know, throw, throw water systems in there with dams that aren't just basins with water in them, but are functioning wetlands in and of themselves. Throw apiaries and bees in, throw chooks and other waterfowl and whatever else following the herds around. Those of us who have played in this game for long enough know how beautiful and kind of enriching the vision of that fully functioning system is or can be. We've all done a lot of dreaming, hey? Yeah, there's a lot of good pictures. Yeah, and 
and it'll happen. Yeah. It's just slower, you know, more frustratingly slow than we'd like, but we'll get there. Yeah, I agree. Does this system, because I've only ever seen these systems applied to subtropical biomes like it, this particular system syntropic agriculture had its genesis in brazil it's gaining a big following in australia particularly in the subtropical climates but is this applicable in say a mediterranean climate yeah totally so it does it take much to tweak it or is it the same principles yeah this, it's the same principles it's just that the plants change and when they grow changes you know and when it rains changes and uh, all of those things change and you know when it's hot and dry and and all of that they all all those things change decay times change there's all of these differences but the whole thing that keeps it all together the whole framework is is the same because all trees are trees yep. you know they all have a they all have a certain type of light that they require, some more than others. They all have a life cycle length, you know, this inescapable. Um, and, you know, they all go through species succession. Species succession occurs. Yeah. So as long as those things occur, this, this applies. And so essentially all plants go through a strong part of their uh, growth in their life, a fast, vigorous um time of their life uh, and they have a slow um, time in their life they slow right down and, and a low energy when they get old um, and so you know that's what we work with okay and then they form groups which go through that strong growth pattern together and then we just manage it so there's no slow bits this is enough biomass the whole time to keep the soil covered yeah well, that's extremely important in brittle climates as, as well, I don't imagine. Mm. So, okay, and, and you're playing with some Mediterranean applications at the moment, aren't you? I'm going to. I'm just about to start um, down in Juni. Uh, you know, it's really exciting because, you know, I'm actually more excited. I, it, to me, it seems easier to work in a Mediterranean climate with this system than it does in the subtropics. Okay. Just because, um, you know, the subtropics, it's such powerful growth. Uh, and there's so many choices of things. Uh, it's it's um, it's fun. It's a lot of fun. But you know the you can really organise your way through the Mediterranean systems. I see because we know the plants so well uh, in in this country. Because you know we all most of the trees that work well are growing in the parks or the road. You know on the streets and, yeah. and whatnot. They're all everywhere. We know you know, the berries, we know apples, you know, we know all of these types of plants that grow there, uh, grapes and whatnot. So it's, 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 there's a lot of scope for it to really, really go well. Yeah. So what I'm doing right now is just going around and collecting every seed I can get yep. and getting people to help to get a seed bank ready for the job. And then we'll put it in on the raining season Cool. Uh, in may um and then you know perhaps put some seedling trees in whereabouts near juni right near wagga it's near wagga wagga i'll be watching with bated breath i'm very interested in how how this can apply to mediterranean climates if anyone was interested in following your work where's the best place for them to go syntropia.com.au okay great i'll put that in the show notes you share some good stuff on um on Facebook too, if anyone wants to hunt you down and stalk you. Yeah, yeah, they can friend me up and I share into the groups a fair bit. So if there's anything worth checking out, it might be on there. Yeah, there's good Centropic Ag groups and pages on Facebook for anyone who's interested. It's just easy to search for. 
I reckon we should get you out to WA sometime to come and um, do an intro course or similar. Well, it'd be a lot of fun to um, it's 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 so much fun to go to new places and 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 learn off the locals about their trees because this is one of the things about why it can move so quickly. I think is because we know our species. You know, I, I like to off off people wherever I go about their trees in their area, and. Uh, and then um, once uh, the knowledge about how we use them and how they fit into that sort of framework, uh, people have a whole new way of looking at their trees in their area and they know how to use them in that syntropic way and, and it sort of picks up pretty quick, you know. Yeah, there's a lot more about these trees that we know than we think we know, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's a whole new world. Don't you dare close your we're only just getting started on our return to a, a subtler relationship with trees or well, the world at large. And that's what syntropic agriculture represents to me. It's like I've said it before about other regenerative agricultural modalities, but this one, I think, like I hinted at earlier, really epitomizes and embodies that slowing down and kind of that subtle conscious reconnection to life cycles, the ebbs and flows going on around us all the time yeah yeah and a new respect for weeds <laughs> and a new respect for weeds yeah you know if, if you know those things that you just can't kill yeah you want your system to be like that yeah you know it's that simple you just want your system to be able to be something you can't kill weediculture yeah you know put in their place and manage they're very powerful yeah, if we try to get rid of them, they just we create conditions for them to come right back. Yeah, that's right. If we keep insisting on stripping things back, largely through glyphosate and other herbicide applications, if we keep insisting on stripping things back to primary or secondary succession dynamics, then we're going to keep getting what we call weeds growing. And I mean, nature is just trying to heal a wound. If you kill everything off, that's like a wound on Mother Earth. There is no bare soil except for very few situations in nature. And nature abhors a vacuum. Mm. And she's just trying to create a scab over that wound and, and heal. She doesn't give a shit what species is doing it. She's told me I had a good long chat with her. <laughs> I, I always see that, that life is invasive. That's the way I see it. It's just that we're always battling against life, but it's always coming at us strongly. You know, here we are trying to back in it. You know, we talk called weeds, et cetera, invasive, but it's just life filling the void. Life uh, finds a way. All right, mate, I'm going to let you go. Thank you very much for joining me. I, I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, no worries. It was fun having a chat, mate. Yeah, all the best. I'll be in touch. All right. Catch you later, mate. Okay, mate. Appreciate it. See you, buddy. Ta-da. Bye. See ya.
Shotgun, who 